And we're going to continue uh, starting in chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can pick that up. Or I think the verses will be up on the screen as well as Paul continues to write this letter to the Philippians, starting in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Um, we're going to jump into this in a second. I want to particularly encourage you, today's sermon, if you have not had much experience in church or if you've had some experience and it hasn't always been good, I'm thinking and I'm praying that God is going to speak to you particularly through today. Hopefully all of us, but especially if we have certain ideas of what it means to be religious or to be Christian, I think God's going to speak some good stuff. So let me pray as we seek the Spirit's guidance. Lord, we confess we come and the reality of it is, and I'm sure many of us are like this, we can be sitting very quiet on a Sunday morning and looking intent and, and concentrated, but so many other things roaring through our minds. Things that we're going through, stuff in our families, stuff in our lives, just difficulties, hardships, distractions, ways we've fallen. And Lord, we pray in the midst of that, would you guide us, Lord? Free us from the ways that the enemy would seek to distract us and fix our eyes squarely on you. And would you do some good gospel work this morning, reminding us of the crux of this Christian faith. And Lord, may you do freeing work amongst many of us here. So help us, Lord, during this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, so Paul, he's continuing to speak of the joy found in Christ Jesus, but he gives a warning now. So in the portion we read here, he gives a warning and fascinating because usually if a preacher is going to give a warning to the church, you're expecting it's going to be like, whoa, 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 church, be careful. There's this movie out there right now that's like really bad for you. So don't go to this thing because they're going to teach you all this bad stuff or don't go to that part of town because you're going to really pick up some bad habits or whatnot. But he gives an interesting kind of warning here, not so much against the immorality of the world, but what's Paul warned the Philippian Christians about? Dogs. He warns them about dogs. And to you and me, that's probably not as significant because we live in a city. I mean, in a culture where we have a very high esteem of pets and dogs in general. Right? We're like, well, that's not a put down. I like my dog. You know, he's, it, what does that mean? That's not the image that's supposed to come to mind like a, a nice little Fido. Because during the first century, when, when you would talk about dogs... Dogs were roaming the streets, and essentially they were wild scavengers. It'd be basically like calling someone a rat if you call someone a dog. And none of you are going to hang out with rats, I don't think, right? Sometimes in our city, you, 
It's hard to tell apart some dogs from rats, but it, it's, this is not a complimentary thing here. These were not the pets that you and I think of, but these are dirty creatures. And, and for the Jews then, since dogs, when they're talking about dogs, these are such dirty creatures, they would refer to Gentiles. Gentile is just a, a different kind of word for a, a non-Jew, non-religious Jew. They would say, these are dogs. These people who don't obey the, the law, they are dogs as well. They're dirty people. So when Paul then is using the word dogs here, he is throwing major shade. Paul is just throwing out, he is calling out a particular group that he addresses here called the Judaizers. And that sounds like a cool gang name or something. Uh, I mean, they might have functioned like a gang. But these are people basically, um, Judaizers, who Jews, who taught that obedience to the ceremonial law as found in the scriptures, this was necessary to be a Christian. So to be a Christian, you needed to obey the ceremonial laws as prescribed throughout the Old Testament. Um, and specifically here, the one that's mentioned that he talks about is circumcision. And if you don't know what circumcision is, uh, we're not going to go into that deep right now, no graphics or anything like that. But basically, if you were a good law-abiding Hebrew, on the eighth day, if you had a son, you would take them to have the foreskin cut. That, it, it was a sign for the people of God. So there were then these Judaizers in this time who were, some of these were commanding new followers of Jesus, saying, hey, you know what, great that whatever your tradition was, whatever your culture, great that you're now saying you're a Christian, but to really be a Christian, it's not about doing all of these good stuff and proclaiming Jesus. It's also about you got to get circumcised. you got to obey all these different kind of uh, rules and laws. So what Paul is saying, what, what he's saying is that these people who are saying righteousness is um, doing these things, he's saying they're not righteous at all. They're actually really evil. That any attempt to please God by, by one's own efforts that are apart from Jesus, it's not only wicked, you're basically mutilating yourself. It's physical mark, it's physical mutilation. So verse 3 then, Paul, what he does is he distinguishes, uh, compared to that, what's a true believer of Jesus it says what it says here. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying that to truly be a Christian is not about the markings on your body. It's about an inner person who walks with God. When it says here glory in Christ Jesus, Paul's talking about kind of boasting, right? It's okay to boast, but boast with like this um, just kind of crazy joy, giving all credit to Jesus. That during singing time, it's okay to jump in up and down. When you're excited about the songs, talking about Jesus, exalt in him. And say it's all about what Jesus has done. Because where the Jews, the Judaizers, they were putting confidence in being things like circumcised. They would put confidence in being like descendants of Abraham. Being able to trace back who their forefathers and forepappies were. Um, doing these, perf um, these external uh, ceremonies and duties of the law. Compared to that, the true Christian realizes that there's no ability. There's no achievement that they can do to make God save them. And so when he says, we are the circumcision, again, Paul is throwing major shade at these guys. Um, he's saying a Christian is not just someone who's marked by a mere symbol of the need for a clean heart, but they've actually been cleansed by God. They're people who have been cleansed. And guys, if you like major beefs, 
like when I, I'm not talking like the meat. If you like beefs between people, if you get off on drama, you, you would love this. This is where it gets epic. I mean, I guess I'm old school, so I'm thinking like Biggie and Tupac. But n- nowadays, I guess it's things like Drake and Meek Mill, a little weaker to my eyes. But, um, you know, there's these feuds. Well, Paul here, he just starts battling. That's basically essentially what Paul starts doing. He's battling. He's throwing shade at these guys. And you see what he's saying, right? Starting in verse uh, four, to, 4 through 5. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in his flesh, I have more. I mean, he's just throwing down here, right? Circumcised on the eighth day. Yeah, on the eighth day. Um, of the people of Israel, I am true blood. Of the tribe of Benjamin, yo, I can trace it back to my forefather Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying there is no doubt what my blood is. My blood is pure. As to the law, a Pharisee. He's saying, basically, I obey everything that they say to and more. I'm a good law abider. As to zeal, a a persecutor of the church. And that might not sound like a positive thing, but for a religious-minded Jew, zeal was probably the greatest value you could have. Because zeal meant not just that you loved God, but that you hated what he hated. So Paul, when he was persecuting the first Christian church, he wasn't doing it because he hated God. He thought he was doing it, but he thought he loved God. And these people were speaking an anti-message of God. So that's why he was persecuting the church. So, and as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Again, he's not saying he's perfect, but he's saying, I have done everything that the law told me to do. But here's the thing, guys. If you had heard this, say someone's just out on the corner with um, like a megaphone and you didn't know anything, you didn't know anything uh, prior to verse 5, you would have thought Paul is just showing off at this point. You'd have thought this guy is just like standing and like puffing his chest out and like, yeah, who's the, who's the man? And just like throwing it at them and like going at them and say, you think you, you and just going at them. Um, he's giving all the reasons why he deserves spiritual favor. You think you're pure? No, no, not more than me. You think you obey the law? Ho, ho, you can't measure up. You can trace your family. Yo, I'm Benjamin. Um, it's an impressive list here. And that's why verses 7 and 8 pack such a wallop. Because what he's saying is, yeah, I got the whole pedigree. I have got the resume. And if you think you got it, put it up next to mine. You are going to fall short. Look at mine. But as much as I've got, it's all worthless. He's using accounting talk here. And some of you who are numbers nerds, numbers coins, you love that. He is basically developing a ledger. He is listing up all the things that he could say, this is what makes me a good person. And, and his whole life, he had thought he's adding to his credit. He is thinking he's adding to his, what makes him better. And he's realized because of Jesus, those things were not actually his benefit. They were to his detriment. All the things that he had always pointed to, this is what makes me a good person. They've actually been to his detriment. And that word rubbish there, that's a polite word. That word in the original language, rubbish is actually like dung, like waste. That's what he calls. He's not just saying, don't just try to be, he's like, the things you're trying to be acceptable to God are actually like rubbish, like dung. That's what it is. So he's throwing hard. He's, he's going in deep. And I, I can't help but think about us here in 2015, that as much as Paul was addressing these Judaizers in this original context, I, I think in some ways he could have been talking just as much to our, our modern Western uh, Christian church. Because I think a lot of the similar spirit resides here. And 
I mean, I don't know too many people nowadays who proclaim circumcision. I mean, if anyone ever does that in our church, just report them because that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's not right. Um, or like certain Old Testament ceremonial purification laws. Um, but there's a lot of things that sometimes as Christians we can look to for our external confidence. Um, and again, depending on who you are, we all have different lists, right? But some of us are like, yeah, you know what? I go to Sunday worship like every Sunday. Even football season, I am that devoted. And I go to like Bible study three out of four weeks. And as to the giving, I am a 10% giver. Oh, and as, as for family, I am a Christian school, homeschool, raised, fully devoted to Jesus since I was like eight months old. My mommy and dad are pastors in the church, elders in the church. Drugs, never. Narcotics, never. Drinking, never. Fighting, never. Cuss word, God forbid. And just list off all of the things. Rated R movies, only if they're killing Jesus. Nothing else, right? It's just kind of list of things that make us good Christians or bad Christians. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes. That's, that's a real, sometimes my brain works faster than my, my mouth works. And I want to affirm, I want to be careful here. I want to affirm, I think a lot of those things I just listed off, I think they're good and they're beneficial activities. And I'd actually encourage a lot of that for your spiritual journey. Things like going to worship. I think this is a good thing. Going to Bible study, giving financially, um, committing to people, um, not watching certain things, watching certain things. I think those can all be helpful things. And I think if it, if it can lead to you a lot of good in your life and help you to guard your life. Here's the thing, though. As a means to or to measure your righteousness, those things will always fall short. Helpful as they might be, if it's used to measure your righteousness, they will always fall short of the standard of God. And just in in my line of work, I discover more and more people who are doing all the right things. You know, I I just talk with them like they're, and it has nothing to do with church sometimes. Sometimes it does. But I I meet people who are living a good life. You know, they're doing all the right things that a good person would do. But, but often, they've never met Christ himself. Like, they're a good husband. They're a good mom. They work hard. They work harder than everyone else. They've been responsible. They're not harming themselves. They're not trying to harm other people. They, they faithfully commit themselves to things. They're moral. They're the ones who are at the park and just look around at other people and say, oh, man, what's happening to this neighborhood? Because I keep my life straight. Like, really straight out good. But the thing is, you can do all those things and totally miss Christ himself. You could totally clean up your life. You could totally have gotten more moral in your behavior and totally miss Jesus. And, and guys, I have to say this. If you're doing all the things that a Christian should do, but in the end, if you, if you miss out on this Jesus, you're still lost. Still as lost as the person who hates Jesus and calls Jesus bad names. Apart from knowing Christ himself, doing all these things in and of themselves will not fix you. And, and a pastoral, like fatherly, maybe kind word to some of us. I think sometimes the challenge in churches is we've gotten really good at telling people how to live a good life. Church often can be a place to say, you know what, I would like a better family, or I would like to have some self-control in my life, or I want a little bit more discipline, or, you know, I've got these, some of these moral issues I want to fix. And again, I, I think those are all great. 
Hopefully that happens. Hopefully we're not becoming more immoral here. If that happens, we're probably not doing something right. But we can't miss out on the fact that if it's just about becoming a better person, you don't need Jesus to do that. And I don't know if this is offensive to some of you. I actually know people of some different religions who are much better people, much more moral, much kinder. Some of the most unkind people sometimes are Christians. Just a moral behavior on its own does not determine who a Christian is. But it's someone who says, I have nothing that I can plead before God other than Christ. If God asks me, why should I accept you? Well, I have nothing to point to. I have no deeds. I have no achievements. I have no religious commitment. I have no obedience. I have nothing I can point to say, this makes me a good person. All I can say is, I'm not. You shouldn't. I have no reason to stand before you. But what I do is I plead the blood of, where's our cross? I, I, plead, I plead the blood. You got, y'all moving stuff on me. I, I plead the cross. I, I plead what Jesus did for me. I have no way to be able to stand except for the fact that Jesus lived the life that I was supposed to live and I just utterly failed and he died the death that I deserved and fully took my guilt and my sin and my shame upon himself. Does that make sense? So why, why I say that so crazily here um, is I, I don't want you guys to continue to come here week after week and think that just because you're doing good things and living a good life, that's what makes you a Christian. That's not. It's someone who says, I need help. It's someone who says, I'm broken. It's someone who says, on the external side, I look like I got it all put together, but I realize I still need Christ in my life. That's what a Christian is. And we want to make clear. So all of that is a little bit more the negative side, kind of like you should not be looking to those things. But I think we also get some really positive lessons here. Because as much as this passage should speak deeply to good people, when I say good, I'm using quotes, like good people, people who've always done what they should, I just think there's such a tremendous message for people here who have never thought of themselves as a good person. If you've never thought of yourself as the good person, there is so much hope in this passage here. Because one of the biggest claims is that Christianity is too exclusive. It's like the whole idea that you know what, y'all, y'all Christians, you're just, um, you're bigoted. You're, you're judgmental. You're self-righteous. You say there's only one way. How can you dare say that in the culture we live in now? That's, that's ridiculous. And you're all about exclusivity. You're all, all about keeping people out. I want to be part of a faith system that's in, inviting. And I'm going to suggest if we, if we grasp what Paul is talking about here about Jesus, there is no more inclusive faith system in the world. There is no more belief system in this world that will bring anyone in. Because in our human eyes, and even in our room right here, I'm sure we've got a wide spectrum of people. In our human eyes, some of us look like we had a head start in life spiritually. Because realistically, some of you, you were born into a a family where your mom and dad just loved Jesus to death. And they raised you that way. And it kept you from certain things. And I would say that's grace. That's God's blessings upon your life. And some of us look like we are starting way back. We're like, man, I didn't have that. I didn't have certain things. I had to survive. So we all come from different places. Um, but the one common thing about the message of Jesus is no matter where we started from, we are all fallen. Every single one. We are all separated from God. We all need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Whether you are pastor's kid who's been singing Sunday school songs since you were like one, 
to whether maybe this is your first time ever in church. Whether you have done stuff that would make everyone clap and applaud you and say, wow, that's a, I would love for my kid to marry someone like that. Or you're like, I would never want my kid to go out with someone like that. We are all at the same exact place in need of God's grace. And, and though our world, it might like to classify people into good or bad people. And we all do that, right? These are good people. These are bad people. The biblical reality is that if there are good and bad teams... I hate to break it to all of us here. Um, none of us is making the cut for the good team. If it's good and bad teams, sorry. It's like all of us scrunched together on the bad team, and there's only one person on the good team. That's Jesus. That, that, that's it. God's playing solo there. Because God saves those that you and I consider unsavable. God loves to rescue people that you and I consider unredeemable. Our God, he doesn't just save the kids who grew up on the right side of the tracks. Or he doesn't just love to rescue kids who had good mommies and daddies who read the Bible to them every night and prayed with them. I mean, God, in his grace, hopefully saves them as well, but he doesn't just save them. He doesn't just save the kids who always went to youth group and went to retreats and had a great youth pastor investing into you. He doesn't just save the kids who kept themselves from, um, you know, immorality or impurities or drugs or whatever you want to list. But he, he loves even saving those who grew up hating God. He loves saving those who, would, who like, just basically gave a spiritual middle finger at God. Saying, I want you too. I'm going to save you too. Not just the people who've always believed in God, but even the hardcore atheists. God loves saving people like that. Not just a girl who's always had like that Sunday school kind of I'll believe whatever the pastor teaches, but the guy who believes that Jesus is even incompatible with his intellectual beliefs, who believes there's no way you can match up science and the Bible. They're totally at odds here. Um, God doesn't look at a resume. God loves saving people wherever they are from. And just a couple of points that should give us hope about that. One, um, I'm going to be very, um, not that I try not to be honest other times. <laughs> I have very little faith sometimes when it comes to people. Maybe it's just getting old. I think the older I'm getting, the crustier I'm getting. Um, but the thing is, in my line of work as a pastor, um, I get to meet some of the most amazing stories of transformation. I get to walk with some people who are going through amazing growth and like 180 kind of things where you, the, from the time you met them to now, you're like, oh my goodness. Praise God. That's only God. But I also meet like some of the dregs of society. I, I say that not to be like extremely judgmental, but just a little bit. Um, I, I encounter like things I, at this point in my life, there is very little that shocks me about what people can do. I've encountered evil. I've encountered people doing evil to other people. Sadly, even evil to themselves. I've had sometimes people want to do evil to me. <laughs> So, because there's this mentality in our world, you know what? At the core, everyone's really a good person. What? <laughs> Seriously? I, I tend to think that people who say that are folks who've lived really like privileged lives, who've never been around truly evil people. Because if, be, if you just live in this world, you're going to run into folks, and sometimes if we're honest, it's us, <laughs> who make you say, wow, there's no hope for humanity. <laughs> 
they're, they're, they're no more better than a dog. I think my dog's actually kinder than they are. That's my struggle, guys. I, I really struggle sometimes looking at certain people and saying, oh, yeah, God can do something. There are some people I look and say, there is absolutely no hope. They will never change. Uh, they don't need Christ. They need to be locked up. That, that's my mentality. But what God reminds me when we look at this is that there is hope for those who you and I think are unredeemable. Because what we're saying is, because it's not all of these good things that we list off all of our righteousness, God looks at that and says, no, that, that, that won't earn it. It's Jesus. What that means on the other end is there's nothing that we can do to earn Christ. It can sound negative, like, oh, there's nothing you can bring. But it's also part of, there's nothing you can do to earn Christ because it's Christ alone who does the work. Trust in him. What that means is you might have lived in the biggest life of decay. You might have been the most harmful person. You might have been, you know, a purveyor of evil. People might look at you on the street and say, that, that person's a waste of humanity. And what I would suggest, church, is maybe we need to repent. I know I have had to repent because what we're doing is we're viewing people through the eyes of flesh. We're doing what's described here. Because of course they'll be unsavable if being um, in Christ is about being a good person and doing these things. Of course these people will be unsavable because that's the standard we have. But if our standard starts to become, there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right before God, then there's hope for the broken. There is hope for the rebel. There is hope for the punk. There is hope for the thug. There is a hope for the junkie. There is a hope for the racist. There is a hope for the violent person. There is hope for all of these people because we realize we received that because we didn't deserve it. Thus, there must be hope for everyone. And I guess simple word I would give on that, don't give up on people as hopeless as they might seem. <laughs> because the man who even wrote this letter here, you know what he was doing right before God saved him? Killing Christians. <laughs> he's a murderer. And now he's right. I think that's the reason why he's so passionate about this. Don't give up on people as hopeless they might seem. So I think that's one hope. But I, I think there's another kind of on the other side hope here as well. Not just for those people, but there's hope for you and I as well. What this says is there's hope for okay, people who might have done what, but there's also hope for you and I even sitting here on a Sunday. Because the thing is, we still do it, don't we? You and I, don't, don't we still do it? Even when we talk about God saving the unredeemable, even when we talk about the language of we can't do anything to earn God's grace, we still have a certain type of person in mind who really needs Christ, right? We still have in mind certain people, oh, they really need Jesus as if other people don't. Because we still put our trust in our trophies. As much as we're being taught here, don't put your trust in your trophies. Don't list off your achievements. Don't list off your resume. We still do it. When, when if we would stand before God, we want to give him the good stuff we've done. But God, I've been really starting to go to church. Oh, but God, I've really started to invest in broken people. God, I've really started to become generous and giving my time and my money. God, I'm really starting to devote myself and serving. And, and that's what we want to bring. We want to bring our trophies. Christ is taking us to a deeper place of knowing him. I, I think that's why, for example, like the Sermon on the Mount, you find it in Matthew, right? The Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches. I think it's one of the most powerful messages in the history of the world 
because Jesus, he, he does stuff like this. You know, you've heard you shouldn't um, commit adultery, but if you even think about it in your mind, it's the same thing. What? Yeah, you know, you shouldn't murder, but if you even think a hateful thought about someone, it's the same thing. What? Are you, are you kidding me? What, what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to free people from just kind of an external be good enough type of religion and saying, I'm about transforming the whole being. I'm about transforming your very hearts, your very desires, your very passions, even what you want, even what you desire. Not just an external one that's merely acceptable to Judaizers and moralists, but a transformation of the whole being. And I know for a lot of us, I know it's so ingrained, um, but we have to heartily reject the message that Christianity is for good, for strong, for clean, for well put together people. We just have to reject that, guys. We've got to talk about it over and over. It's not just for those kind of people. Because the Christian message is not about good people getting more good. Amen? Because and the truth is that message has crushed many of you here. Because you've tried to live in the past when the pre- pre- preacher has told you, you know, be good now. Here's the word, be good. And you've tried and you realize you can't do it. Because even though you might be able to fake it on the outside, you still got your heart. And you don't feel it. And you feel miserable. And that's why so many people even walk away from the church. Because it's not giving me hope. It's just making me feel worse. I got enough guilt and shame. I don't need more. Because, guys, the Christian message instead, it's good news for bad people coming to grips with their failure to be good. The Christian message is good news for bad people coming to grips with their failure to be good. The Christian message is not trying to tell just church people, come on, be better, guys. It's telling people who've recognized I cannot be good and giving hope, giving forgiveness, giving grace, giving love. And this is just simple, simple Sunday school theology, but can I affirm to you guys, Jesus loves bad people. He loves to make them good. And I hope that brings some of you hope here. Jesus loves bad people. He loves to make them good. How do we know? The cross. How do we know? Because we see evidence of Christ's love on the cross that he doesn't just die for good people. He died for bad people. That's why he had to take that punishment upon himself so that you and I would not have to take that upon ourselves. I just want to close on this thought here before we sing and before we come to the table. Christians... And for some of you, you really got to like, change your mindset of what it means. Christians are not motivated primarily by trying to be good people doing good things. I know for some of you, that's all church has ever been about, trying to be a better person. No wonder you haven't wanted to go to church because you feel miserable. Christianity, because you can do good things and totally miss Christ. The Christian's motivation is not just doing good things. It's knowing Jesus. The Christian's motivation is knowing Jesus. And that's why we even do what we're doing here. Have you ever thought about what you do when you come to worship on a Sunday? Um, And some of you are thinking, wow, you don't think about it, you just do it. Well, I would encourage you to think a little bit more because if it's just about like checking off a box, thinking, oh, wow, you know what? God, he's got his scorecard up in heaven. Man, I made like three out of four this month. Woohoo! That's got to count for something. And again, not to belittle God, but as if he really cares about keeping a scorecard, it's for you. It, it is for God, for his glory, because we worship him. There's something in that, that just us gathering together, we worship God, he receives glory. But a lot of it, 
It's for your heart and mine. Because the thing about coming here, receiving the word, the thing about why do we go to groups is to be with other people and have our hearts shaped and, 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 and be in the word and pray for one another. Why do we serve? Why do we do all things? Why do we sing? Why are we going to sing a little bit? Is it to give God more karaoke? He doesn't need that. It's to ask as we do that, God, cultivate my affections for you. God, continue to move my heart. God, give me more affection for you. Because, guys, if your motivation is to be a better person, it probably will not happen. If your motivation is to see more of Christ, being a better person will happen. As you fall more and more in love with him. So let me ask you to stand right now. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up and and lead us in some songs to close. But we're going to go into this time of communion. And one of the ways we've been given to know Christ is through communion up here at the table And we have these pieces of of, uh, wafer in the middle. It represents the body of Christ. And the reason why we do this every week, guys, it's a significant remembrance. There's something about the command that Jesus gave to us to remember him in doing this. This is not just a religious symbol. This, This is like spiritual significance that we remember the broken body of Jesus. And we dip it in one of the cups and remember Jesus's blood that was spilled and sacrificed for us. And, and in the end, you remember that the Christian is not just someone trying to be a better person, but remembering the Jesus who gave himself for us when we were not good people. When we didn't deserve it. When we were off doing God knows what, God didn't give up on you. Though everyone else in this world might want to give up on you, God will not give up on you. You know how? Because you look at communion. You look at the Lord's Supper. So if you're a Christian in this room, I'm going to invite you during this time to come up and take a piece of the wafer from the middle and come up both sides, dip it in the cup, and and right there, just remember Jesus, thank him, praise him. If you're not a Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to ask you today, this is not about some ooga booga weird, I just be honest and say, I don't think I know Jesus in this way, because for me, it's always been about being a good person. And for me, it's been about saying, I'm not bad compared to that person on down the corner. But maybe God is saying, you need more than just trying to be a good person because it's never enough. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. So let me ask you, church, if that's not you, if that's not you, humbly today say, I don't just need to be a good person because it's never been enough. I need Christ. And say just simply, Jesus, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I need you. And pray to God that way. Let me pray for us here, Lord. Lord, help us as we come to you right now in coming to the table and in prayer, Lord, and in singing. God, it's so easy to just settle into these habits because that's what Christians do. But Lord, would you remind us these are means of grace that you give to us so that our hearts might be cultivated for you, that you are wooing us through these things, that when we go and serve and get involved and love our neighbors and when we gather in fellowship, when we pray, when we fast, when we give, when all of this... It's not just to do these good things so that you'll say, okay, good job. Ultimate, Lord, it's ways that you woo our hearts for you. You cultivate our affections. So do that in our midst here, Lord. And I pray for those of us who maybe we're just coming to get to know you. Speak to us, Lord. And remind us there's nothing that we can do to make us acceptable before you. It's through Jesus alone. And we confess him. So the table will be open now. I I encourage you to sing, pray. Whenever you're ready, if you're a Christian, come on up and receive communion from both sides of the table. And let's continue to worship that way.